Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. I interviewed for this episode Adrian Bollinger, the mountaineering guide. He has over 25 years in the industry. You might know him from TV. He was on season three of Everest Beyond the Limit when he was guiding for Russell Bryce, and he mentions that in his interview. And he was also on Edge of the Earth Episode 3 on HBO with his wife, Emily Harrington. She's a professional climber and a North Face athlete. And he mentions her a couple different times during the episode because he met her on Mount Everest. He is the CEO and co-founder of Alpenglow. One of the things that really got me in this interview is that we really got into his opinion of why the deaths occur on Mount Everest. And let me tell you, it is nothing like anybody else's opinion. It's completely different. Um, It doesn't have to do with climate change, overcrowding, anything like that. It's a little shocking, but on the other hand, it makes absolute sense. We also talk about how his company only climb from the northern side of Everest through Tibet. They don't climb through Nepal. And it was very interesting, all of the reasons behind that. I really hope that you enjoy this interview. But before we get to it, just a couple housekeeping things. So I mentioned last week that Adrian's interview was going to be today, and the next two episodes are also going to be interviews. I don't want to say too much because even though they are scheduled, sometimes things happen. One of the persons that I'm interviewing, which guys, you really do not want to miss this, um, the time difference and the language barrier has definitely been a bit of a struggle. Um, but we're scheduled to record next Sunday, my time, Monday, his time, because it's a 12 hour time difference. And so I'm really excited for it, but I'm going to let you guys know, this is like one of the most well-known mountain climbers right now. And the guy is powerful and awesome and amazing. So you do not want to miss next week's episode. I am getting ready for a camping trip in Oregon. We're going to bend, not to explore. We're going to my sister's wedding. And of course, you know, if you go to bend, you have to go camping. One of the things that has been extremely helpful is all of the gear that I have gotten in the last couple of months in my nomadic subscription box. It starts at $29.99 and one of the best things about it is all of the gear that's in there. So as I was going through everything, almost all of the stuff that I have for me and the kids is stuff that we have gotten through our nomadic boxes. I've been a subscriber since 2018 and I'm talking headlamps, camping pillows, water bottles, coffee, granola bars, all of this stuff I've gotten for my nomadic boxes. And as a thank you, our readers, if you use the code EVEREST, get 10% off any of their orders. You can also find the link in the show description. All right, so now it's on to the rest of the episode. I hope you guys really enjoy it. It was an awesome interview. Adrian's really down to earth and just a fantastic human. So here we go. Hey, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us for the All About Everest podcast. Thanks for having me. 
So you have a lot of experience and you've been climbing for how long? Uh, well, shoot. I mean, I started climbing in Massachusetts when I was 12 years old. So that's 35 years ago now. Um, and I did my first high altitude peaks when I was 17 years old. I went to Ecuador on a trip and climbed Cotopaxi, Cayambe, and Chimborazo. So 6,000 meter peaks in Ecuador. And so that was 30 years ago. And I've pretty much been dedicated to this life as a, as a climber, a big mountain skier, and a mountain guide ever since. And you have a lot of experience in a lot of different fields. Um, when did you decide that you wanted to climb Mount Everest? You know, so when I fell in love with climbing in my early teenage years, one of the things that like really captured me was like books and films about Mount Everest and the early expeditions there, the early explorers and kind of like the incredible unknowns they were facing and the kind of like physical, emotional, mental battles they had to go through to try to be successful on these mountains. So I had a dream of Everest from when I was 14 or 15 years old, but it took me until I was 30 to actually craft a path there. And I think that's you know, one of the things that I'm proud of is like that I stayed on that path to find a way to get there. I obviously couldn't afford to just pay to go to Everest. And so the only chance I had was was to mountain guide on Mount Everest. And that's why it took me until I was 30. I started mountain guiding when I finished college at 21. You know, as a real job before that, I was kind of interning and helping out. And then I did nine years of guiding on smaller mountains in South America and, and Africa and a lot of time in Europe and getting my IFMGA certification. So the guide certification that's the standard in the world, even though maybe not the standard yet in the United States. And finally, in 2007, I was able to kind of find my way into the 8,000 meter peak world. And then in 2008, to my first time to Everest. And how many times have you summited Mount Everest? I've summited Mount Everest eight times. I've been on the mountain for 13 years, so 13 expeditions. And I think that's important for people to know. There's a, there's a trend right now out there for people to be like 100% success. And I can tell you from a long career in the mountains, there is no such thing. And for anyone boasting or claiming it, it's because their career has not been that long yet. The mountains are too damn powerful uh, to have 100% success. So 13 years on the mountain, eight summits, and actually one personal summit without supplemental oxygen, which was, I think, unique and I'm really happy I did it because I think I experienced a bit more of what maybe our clients on the mountain feel. The, the point of Mount Everest is to be pushed to your absolute limits, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I expect each of my clients to go to those lines. But I think sometimes mountain guides using oxygen don't actually feel what that means. And so then maybe it's hard to appreciate what our clients are going through and keep them as safe as possible. By climbing without supplemental oxygen, I failed my first try in 2016, and then I succeeded in 2017. Like, I learned what it meant to truly uh, kind of lay everything on the line to go to the edge on Mount Everest. And uh, I think that's been really important experience for me in terms of my conservative decision making, how I approach and respect the mountain. So when you did it without oxygen, you failed the very first time then. I failed after a two and a half month long expedition. So a traditional length expedition going up and down and up and down. Um, I was less than two hours from the summit. Um, but I had really struggled with cold and with my energy levels and got to the point where my I, my hands were numb to behind my wrists so I, and I was alone. So I could no longer put a device onto the rope. I could no longer clip onto the fixed rope with a Jumar. And so I was soloing with my arm just wrapped around the rope. And a number of hours of that, I just realized I was getting to the point, slurring my words, confused that I was gonna get myself killed. And I ended up um, turning around and then getting some help on the way down from a Sherpa partner, Paulden who was higher on the mountain with my teammate, Corey Richards. He came down to help me with putting my belay device on the rope and things like that. I got back to camp four and was able to put supplemental oxygen on. And, um, you know, I'm sure that's why I still have my fingers and toes is that I came down and put oxygen on. Because that has been a huge thing is that people are not understanding their bodies. And so they're not, um, they're not, understanding that they need to turn around and come back down 
And this year on Mount Everest was crazy. My understanding is that it was double the normal amount of injuries because of frostbite and altitude sickness and all of that. The amount of frostbite was, I mean, everyone I've talked to is possibly losing fingers and toes this year. <laughs> yeah, the amount of frostbite, I mean, I consider frostbite in my company, you know, so I founded Alpenglow Expeditions in 2004. Um, and, you know, one of our founding tenets is a client or a ship or a guide getting frostbite is a failure of our system. And I think maybe there's not enough conversation happening of that in the industry right now. Like frostbite is an absolute failure of the guiding system and of expedition leadership. That's not to say it can't happen. I've had lots of friends have frostbite. I've had frostbite on two of my toes and needed treatment at Johns Hopkins and was lucky to keep them. But when I came out of that experience, I didn't think frostbite is part of the game. I thought I fucked up. I don't know if swearing's allowed on your- Oh, yeah, go ahead, swear, swear, swear all you want. Like, and I stopped and like, I took time to figure out what had gone wrong to allow that to happen. Frostbite is inexcusable. Um, In 25 years of guiding, I've had two clients get frostbite on different mountains, neither on Everest. Um, But both times they they were like, shut down our operation and let's figure out what went wrong and how we can do better. Um, and you know, this year, apparently the clinics in Kathmandu ran out of Iloprost, the main treatment of frostbite, because there was so much of it. There's rumors of over 200 helicopter rescues from above the icefall, a lot of which were frostbite. And then those people couldn't climb down themselves. Um, it's, it's inexcusable, but it's, I don't want to put that all on the clients. I think there's an easy excuse in the marketplace right now to be like inexperienced clients it's their fault they took the risk my feeling is it's the companies who are responsible for those accidents so when you we we you know a client has chosen not to be a professional full-time climber right that's why they're hiring a guide company to go to mount everest that means it's going to be very hard for them to know when to turn around it's an incredibly difficult decision to make as a professional climber that's done it for my entire life how can we expect an inexperienced climber who's maybe climbed for three years or five years to have that knowledge when something they've worked for for years they're so close to we just can't expect them to make those decisions so that is the job of the mountain guide and the expedition leader and that's why for instance alpenglow expeditions we only hire ifmga certified mountain guides now you could be from nepal and be ifmga certified or you could be from europe or you can be from the us but if you're not ifmga certified it's like going to a doctor that doesn't have hasn't passed their boards and so i think we need ifmga certified mountain guides and they shouldn't be running expeditions until they have lots of 8000 meter peak experience under their belts and that takes time. And the same goes for the Sherpa. We're seeing a real tendency now of um, Sherpa being called guides very quickly. But I think it's important to remember that Sherpa are not guides, they're high altitude workers who do work on the mountain unless they get the guide certifications through the IFMGA and then they're guides. They are two different jobs. Mountain guides can't be high altitude workers not strong enough high altitude workers can't be guides and we need to separate those things sorry i'm on the soapbox here oh no no i i love listening to this because it's a completely different perspective i mean if you look at some of the stuff that's happened this season right is that it seems a lot of the companies that lost people on the mountain had clients missing had clients that were injured are not taking any responsibility. Like I've heard zero responsibility was taken of what what went on this year to people who were climbing, to the clients that were up there. Um, Let's backtrack. So the IFMGI certification, what does that consist of? Well, so, I mean, it's essentially exactly like medical school or law school or something like that. So, and I think the same is true. So really quickly, like, certification should not replace experience, right? You need both. So when you go to choose a doctor to have one of the most serious surgeries you need or something like that, and Mount Everest is one of the most serious mountains you can climb on the planet, you choose a doctor who has both experience and certification. 
the same should be true with mountain guiding. Um, and so certification, what it is, is it's a standardized process around the world. I think there's something like 38 countries that are now part of the IFMGA. And every mountain guide goes through a process that for most takes somewhere between three and five years. So it's just like a graduate degree. They are quite expensive. People take out loans to do them. Um, and you're going through a process of basically courses where you're being educated by highly experienced mountain guides, trainers. Then you have experience requirements. You have to go out before you can go to the next course. And you're gonna do about 120 days of courses over about three years. And then you're gonna have exams and there's seven to 12 day exams in each of the different disciplines of mountain guiding. So that's alpine climbing, that's rock climbing, and that's ski guiding, three different disciplines that are part of the overall certification. And so the key is that I, what I found, I was a very experienced, because it's not required in the United States, the United States is one of the only countries in the world that doesn't require it to do this job. Um, and because it's not required, I actually mountain guided for over a decade before I started my certification. And I was a good mountain guide, but it was wild to be in a scenario where Actually, most mountain guides work alone most of the time to actually have someone breaking down what you do and how you might be able to do it better. And then to have the stress of an exam, which is just like the stress of something going really wrong on a big mountain. Um, I learned so much through that process. And at the end of the day, you end up with a degree, essentially. It's not a degree to go and guide anything on the planet. It's a degree to then go and get the ex more experience to then become the highest level of guide you can be. And you, you, you guide expeditions all over the world with your company, Alpenglow. Um, but there's something unique about Everest. You have your, your program on Everest is completely different than anybody else's for a variety of reasons. So tell us about what you do and why you only climb on the north side. Sure. Yeah, so um, Alpenglow Expeditions, when I founded it, our goal was to, you know, have help mountains become, com help, help climbers and develop climbers to become competent team members to climb the mountains of their dreams. And so our goal is not, you know, not every climber is going to get to the point of being able to climb Everest on their own without guiding. That's obviously not the goal. But also, we don't just want to drag people to summits and tag boxes. So we take an educational approach that our team members are going to be experienced enough for the mountain they're attempting to actually be able to enjoy it. And if the shit hits the fan, they're going to be an asset to the team instead of a detriment to the team. So that's kind of the goal. So our teams end up smaller than a lot of other teams out there because of the requirements we set and the, and the fact that we do want to be able to focus on each member and their education and enjoyment of the program. We only use certified mountain guides like we talked about already. Um, and so that's kind of the foundation we started with. And we started in 2004, when I finally went to Everest in 2008, we kind of looked at the Everest model and then how, and I learned under Russell Bryce. So I did my first four years on the mountain with Russell Bryce, just like, I think one of the most talented expedition leaders ever. And I think it's a real loss that he's not still on the mountain today. His ethics and his moral North Star was just unparalleled. And I'm lucky to have gone to learn with him for four or five years. We did eventually part ways because I wanted to focus on some of the technological changes that I thought were possible on the big mountains. And I also wanted to run smaller teams. Himex was pretty big. Um, and I thought smaller teams led to more positive, safe experiences on the mountains. Um, but so, you know, when we looked at Everest, we tried to think of what made for the safest, most powerful experience. So we kept small teams. We started in 2013 doing rapid ascent, so slightly faster expeditions. Selfishly, I learned that like I didn't love the part of expeditions where we just sat around in base camp for weeks and drank whiskey and played cards. Um, and I didn't think it was helping people to be successful. I noticed so many people were going home just because when you spend two and a half months on an expedition, things go wrong. You know, maybe something at home goes wrong. Maybe something at work calls you back. Maybe you have a toothache that you need to go get treated. So I felt if we could compress expeditions safely, we'd actually have higher success rates. 
And Rapid Ascent does that. That's our trademark program. It includes both pre-acclimatization and hypoxic tents, which lots of people talk about. But it's not only that. It's also the logistics and skills of our guide team that we surround people with to then be able to, once they pre-acclimatize, to then actually move faster on the mountain successfully. Since we started Rapid Ascent in 2012 on Makalu, we've noticed a significantly higher success and safety rate amongst our clients than I had the decade previously with Russell. Like it just works. And now I think we're unique out there because this is the only way we run seven and 8,000 meter peaks. Um, they, our trips are 30 to 50% faster. And we don't try to mix fast clients in with slow clients, which creates, I've seen just massive team stress when you bring this fast team in and they join a team that's been there for weeks already. We, this is the only way we run trips and it's worked really well for us. And then North side, you know, I spent eight years on the South side of the mountain. So I've climbed, you know, eight of my seasons on the South side, five of my seasons on the North side. Um, so I think I'm kind of uniquely positioned in the industry to actually talk confidently about both sides. I think a lot of people guide one side of the mountain and talk about how awful the other side is. I've actually done both. Um, and I made a decision in 2014 that the South side, we could no longer safely operate for our clients, but more importantly, for our support staff, for our Sherpa and mountain guides. There were two things that caused that. One was the danger of the ice fall. It's uncontrolled. Another three people died there this year. Um, it's just, there's no other mountain on the planet that we would send people through that ice fall. Workers, Sherpa and guides in New Zealand, all ice falls that are dangerous, like the Kumbu ice fall, we fly people over them. On Denali in the United States, no, very few people climb from the bottom of the mountain. We all fly over the dangerous bottom part of the glacier and start at 6,000 feet. On Mont Blanc in Europe, everyone almost everyone passes the bottom by either riding a chairlift or taking a train. Um, I think it's unconscionable that we're still running Sherpa through the ice fall. And so that was a big challenge for me of the south side of the mountain. I, I went through the ice fall 38 times myself and almost died twice and lost a Sherpa there and helped do numerous body rescues or body recoveries in the ice fall. So I feel very qualified to speak to the dangers of the ice fall. And then second of all, so I started proposing to Nepal, how about we fly helicopters over the ice fall and start our expeditions from Camp One. It was actually getting quite far on that process. Um, but then Nepal chose not to regulate their side of the mountain. And so now I don't think it's enough to just skip the ice fall. The dangers of inexperienced teams being led by unethical expedition operators makes the upper mountain too dangerous for me. I don't think I, as a mountain guide, can do what my job is, which is to keep my staff and clients as safe as possible. So that was a long answer. I moved to the north side in 2014, and it is dramatically safer, dramatically cleaner, far less crowded, and much better managed by the government there. The challenge of that is that means I, because China has been closed with COVID regulations for the past four years, um, I haven't been on Mount Everest since 2019, and it's heartbreaking for me and my team. We've been trying to support our staff, even without having expeditions to Nepal. Um, you know, financially for Alpenglow Expeditions is taking us to the very brink of not existing as a company. And I think what you saw was a lot of companies, you know, the same thing I did. Financially, they were forced to go back to the South side or they felt forced. We chose not to. I'm proud of that decision, but it has been brutal from a business perspective. Because there are other companies that did focus on the North side and then they, they went to the South. Um, because financially they just they just couldn't and um, I know that you've you've talked before but a lot of people have said that the north side is definitely safer because there is no kumbu ice fell there's the government regulates things so much better than the Nepali government and also clean it's cleaner and um, it's less crowded that's right why do you think it's less crowded on the north side in general, not the last four years, obviously? So in the early 2000s, the north side was more popular than the south side. It was the side to climb and guide. 
Um, big companies like Himex were there and IMG and Adventure Consultants. It was clearly recognized as being the safer, better side. In 2008, China closed the mountain two weeks before the season started for the Olympics. They wanted to bring the Olympic torch to the summit of the mountain and they didn't want to have other teams there while they did it. And a lot of people lost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in that process. And so companies, I think, decided that China maybe wasn't a reliable partner and moved to the south side at that time, including Russell. Um, and that's why I spent so many sides, so many years under Russell's tutelage on the south side of the mountain. Um, and then since then, as China has allowed people to climb again on the north side, they've been more expensive. They've been more difficult to get visas to enter Tibet. And there's always been this little uncertainty about stability in Tibet, whereas Nepal has been like all open, anything goes. And so that's why I think people have gained kind of like, and the South Side companies have done a really good job of kind of blowing up these fears of the North Side and reliability with the Chinese. Now, I haven't had a client denied on the North Side in a decade. Um, I haven't had my expedition not allowed to go to the North Side except for the COVID years. Um, so, you know, I think those fears are overblown, but they have effectively kept the side smaller. And then about just before COVID in 2019, China said they don't want their side to look like Nepal. So they were gonna keep increasing fees they kicked out about 30% of the companies allowed to run on the north side, including a number of the budget companies. They said, you're not maintaining garbage standards and safety standards, you're out. And so the budget market basically went away on the north side. That's keeping the side quieter. And then the last thing is they've said there will be a limit of 300 permits a year. Now we haven't gotten close to 300 permits a year. The last year I was there in 2019, there was 150. So it's not actually the permit limit, limiting this, keeping it not busy, but they are saying we recognize we need a cap. Because this year, I think it was, I want to say 480 permits on the Nepali side. And that's just permits for climbers. That does not include guides, support staff, anything like that. You know, you you get over a thousand people on the mountain at one time, and there's just one little pass. That's right. Yep. And so I you, you know, interestingly, like one of my things has almost always been. I actually, I'm not sure the south side is too crowded exactly. If you had competent team members being led by certified IFMGA mountain guides, when I used to guide the South side, it was busy, but I would just leave the fixed ropes with my clients and rope them up with a normal climbing rope, just like we would on Denali or Mount Vincent or all the other mountains in the world. And we would climb around the traffic jams. And it was so funny. I remember in 2013 on the South side, I actually, oh no, I'm sorry, it was 2011. I placed the, I was part of the summit rope fixing team. It was nine Sherpa and me who fixed the ropes to the summit. That's something I used to do a lot in the early 2000s because I just loved climbing and was invited by the Sherpa to work with them. And I fixed the ropes to the summit, came down two weeks later, went with my clients, and then we skipped the lines because they were too busy and we climbed our own way up to the South Summit. And people from the line yelled at us that, that there's no cutting allowed on Mount Everest. There's no skipping lines. And that to <laughs> me is the inexperience showing. It was guides yelling at us that. And that's the inexperience showing because we should actually as mountain guides have the skills to not need the fixed ropes. Of course they make it easier and we want them there. But if climbers just started climbing using mountain guide techniques, we wouldn't feel these bottlenecks. So I would argue we don't need fewer people on the South side. We need to raise the level of experience of the clients, but also of the mountain guides. The mountain guides and what we're calling mountain guides currently is embarrassing and it's leading to these issues. And again, that is one of the perspectives. People don't talk about that. People talk about the overcrowding they don't talk about the lack of experience with the guides. It's um, and <laughs> it is, it is. It's not cut and dry. I know people want it to be, but it really isn't. And, you know, the fixed ropes, they do make it easier. But again, how many of those guides or those clients 
have that skill where they can circumvent around the fixed rope safely. And it seems to me like a lot of people don't have those skills, especially when you have people who don't even know how to put on crampons. You got it. But, you know, Alpenglow Expeditions, for example, we require that people have climbed five 6,000 meter peaks, one 7,000 meter peak and one 8,000 meter peak before they join our group trip on Mount Everest. If you've done that, you've been in crampons for 60 days. Um, you've done days of real rock climbing, real ice climbing, as well as snow walking. And so when, and very importantly, I think probably if you've done all those expeditions, you've also experienced failure. I think a lot of the fatalities on Everest happening because people don't know the failure is a very real possibility. And so you just have to be prepared to turn around when the mountain tells you to. And so by doing seven expeditions before you go to Mount Everest, chances are you failed on one before and you've had to go back and repeat it. And that is something really important before you go into Mount Everest that we need to respect the mountain and what it's telling us. Um, and so yeah, and it's that type of experience. Once you've done all those things, you are absolutely ready to climb off the fixed lines when necessary with your mountain guide, and that makes the mountain safer. And we've kind of bumped into this topic, but this year was the deadliest year on the mountain itself. Why do you think that happened? <laughs> yeah, like you said, we bumped into that topic. I mean, the sad part is, you know, I don't think risk should ever be taken out of Mount Everest, right? Like risk is part of what makes climbing different than let's say running a marathon where you can just DQ, disqualify and go to an aid station if you're hurt or sick. The mountains are meant to have risk, but it's when we as commercial operators take someone's money, that relationship changes. When we hire people to do work, that relationship changes. There's, there's a reason there's something called OSHA in the United States, right? ensuring safety of workers. We, we need to have those higher levels of standards of safety when we're in a commercial relationship with people. And what's happening on Mount Everest had nothing to do with it being a colder season. It had nothing to do with climate change. Uh, it solely had to do, my opinion, I recognize this is my opinion, with a lack of ethics from commercial operators taking people who we're not ready to be there and or promising people a different letter level of safety and service than they then received on the mountain. That's not to say there wouldn't be some deaths this year because the mountain should have risk. There will be some fatalities, but the majority of fatalities that I saw looked like, and again, I'm a Monday morning quarterbacker sitting over here because I wasn't on the mountain this year, but I have a lot of friends on the mountain that I get to speak to, Sherpa and mountain guides. A majority of the fatalities sound like things like people say exhaustion, altitude, running out of oxygen, heart attack. Heart attack is a classic excuse. Maybe there are heart attacks on the mountain, of course they happen, but they're also probably an excuse for someone who should have turned around, should not have been at the altitudes they were at. Their body was under too much stress. Um, a majority were those. And then the really obvious accidents in the icefall. We know we shouldn't be sending Sherpa through the icefall with heavy loads. There's just, it's pure mathematics. When I decided not to go to the icefall anymore, I know as an expedition operator, if I run 10 expeditions with 12 Sherpa and each one needs to go through the icefall six days and I do the math, there is no way I cannot have a fatality of a Sherpa on my team. And I think that's bullshit. Those are completely avoidable accidents by either going on a safer route on the north side of the mountain or by lobbying the government to fly helicopters through the icefall. And too many companies are doing neither. And one of the things that was brought that has been brought up about skipping the ice fall is it's cheating it's cheating if you don't go through it because you're not yeah. going through the bottom yeah. and what's your response to that my response is there is no such thing as cheating on a mountain because we are not a sanctioned sport with rules and referees everybody is already cheating as compared to what you know, Reinhold Messner did in 1976 or whatever year it was. Like if you're using oxygen, you're cheating. If you're using fixed lines, you're cheating. If someone's breaking trail through the snow in front of you, you're cheating. Like if you know that you have a Hillian Journey doing the most epic climb on the, on the mountain, I'm sure would agree with me by saying he knew he had a safety net that if things went wrong, 
if he summited, he could go down the normal route and use those fixed ropes. So even the best climbers on the planet are cheating if we actually say there are rules. There are no rules. There is only ethics that you finish your expedition and are proud of. And so I think we just need to be honest about what we do and don't do. No more bullshit posts about 100% success or I didn't climb with oxygen when I did or I was solo, but I used a fixed rope that some of the team put on the mountain. Like, it's all bullshit. Just be honest about what you did and then be proud of it and climb in the style you're proud of, period. I love that response. I mean, it really does come down to that. Like, um, <laughs> the honesty behind it, Adrian, like your honesty, it's, you're not sugarcoating anything. And unlike some of, you know, the other guides that are out there, the other companies out there that are, they're like, well, it's because of, or not taking responsibility. Like you're a hundred percent being like, no, this is it. And I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, I wasn't this way a decade ago. Like I, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, I was a lot more scared about my company and scared about my, you know, life as a professional climber. And, you know, maybe I didn't have as much experience and maybe I just wasn't as like, pissed off but like what happened this year on the mountain and not just this year like I said the same things last year like I want to finish my career whenever that is I hope it's a long long time from now and look back and be proud about what my industry did for the world right like I started guiding Everest because I watched it changing people in really positive ways changing me as an individual changing my clients whatever walk of life they come from I've guided a crab fisherman from Alaska and I've guided a you know prince from Italy and and a billionaire financier from London like across the board I saw Everest changing people and I'm afraid we will lose that if we can't be proud of how we approach and interact with the mountain and with each other and so that's why I think I'm a lot more outspoken now like I I'd rather get you know, scarlet lettered and never be able to step on the mountain again, then not, you know, try to be proud of what we're doing over there. Because, and, and you're doing it all on the record, which is awesome because I've talked to a lot of people this year who had theories and of what, you know, what happened and what went on. And they're like, we don't want it to be recorded. We don't want it to be on the record because we don't want to like be blacklisted from the mountain. And one of those things, and we're going to jump back to the acclimatization, was that these companies that are, people are taking these shortcuts, you have this whole program of, you know, months and years to get your clients ready when there's clients that have made, they basically fly to the mountain with no acclimatization. They're there for two and a half weeks, start to finish. And all they've done is sleep in a hypoxic tank and taking some drugs. So, and every, a lot of people were saying, well, these shortcuts are a huge reason of why this year happened. And so I'm, I'm glad that you brought up your program and also you're honest about everything that's going on on the mountain. Jumping back, what is the difference between your program and these other ones that are out there? Yeah, you know, I think there's two things. One is we don't only have people pre-acclimatize in hypoxic tents. The pre-acclimatization works. We know it works. Um, we've now, you know, had, I, I bet we're over a thousand clients at this point that have used the hypoxico system along with, you know, all of our guides and many others. So we know the system works to help us pre-acclimatize, but what we tell our clients is all we're actually doing is speeding their time to base camp. And that's the part of the trip that I'm trying to compress because that's the time so many people get sick on their trek into the mountain in Nepal or on their Jeep ride across Tibet. Um, that's where hygiene's an issue and upper respiratory issues and all these things. It's also this period, if you take weeks to getting to the mountain, you're starting to lose all that fitness that you built and all the muscles you worked on. So we try to compress the base camp. 
once we're in base camp, we're not pretending that you're more acclimatized than anyone else on the mountain. So we go back into a traditional schedule above base camp. We're only using four liter flow of oxygen, not six or eight, like people are claiming they do now, but they're running out and having to turn it up and down and up and down. And that's much worse for the client. We run on four, we acclimatize people to be able to climb on four and keep their saturations in the high 80s or low 90s. So, um, you know, I think people are using, again, like you said, showing up in base camp and thinking it only takes two weeks. Our expedition is 35 days long. That was incredibly fast five years ago. And now people are trying to say they can do it faster. The reason we've stuck at 35 days is that's where we maximize safety and success. Alpenglow actually has the record on the mountain. We had a client climb Everest door to door, USA to USA in 14 days and spend only, I think that was, you know, six days on the mountain going up and one day going down. And then there was travel on both sides and day change and all that. But um, so we have the fastest time anyone's ever done on the mountain, but that's not our system. That's not what we're advertising. That was a unique human that we worked with for years with a huge expensive safety net around them to see if something was possible. And it was, but what we run is what we found works for the vast majority of clients in the safest way possible. And our Sherpa enjoys supporting it because the clients are actually strong and competent and capable. And so I think that's really different. It's the system that we've landed on. Um, and then, yeah, maybe that's enough. And then, it, but I would say it's, and then it's the experience of those people, the clients and the guys and the Sherpa, every single one of our Sherpa, high altitude workers, they're either mountain guides, meaning they've been through the IFMGA certification process and that makes them mountain guides, or they're high altitude workers and they've been through the Kumbu Climbing Center certification process. No one is a high altitude worker, a Sherpa on our mountain until they've gained the appropriate certifications as well. They have avalanche education, they have first aid, they understand how to use fixed ropes and technical systems, no one, Every for every job, there's a certification, and we need to ensure everyone has those. That's what allows us to run the rapid ascent system at a high level of safety and success. You can't just go fast. And it seems to me that like your number one goal is not money, it's safety, and not just safety for your crew or the clients, but everybody involved. And that is something I don't think that everybody really care for lack of a better word cares about it's more about the money getting people up and down than really focusing on the safety and taking responsibility from a to z not skipping anything in the middle and i commend you for that adrian well, well thanks i appreciate it i mean i um <laughs> yeah like i yes yes like i you know um, I hope Alpenglow Expeditions is successful. I have two partners in the business who are not 8,000 meter guides like I am, but certified IFMGA mountain guides. Mm -hmm. And we're able to sit down and talk about what the values of the company are. And we start there. And do I wish our Everest program was more profitable sometimes? Sure. Um, but, but yeah, that's not where we start. And what you said, I think is really important. Like it's about safety, not only for our clients, but also for our staff. Um, and, you know, if, if I had one shock this year that made me really frustrated, it was fatalities happening on the mountain and companies not like pausing, still claiming on their Instagrams that they were doing great and having a great season and still on the mountain going right back to climbing. I, in my, in my 25 year career, I've had two, uh, staff fatalities, either mountain guide or Sherpa fatalities. Both were actually with other companies, not my own, but both times the company owner and me as the mountain guides, me as the mountain guide or expedition leader, we stopped our operation. In 2004, we stopped and we actually all went home from a trip to Island Peak and Mara Peak in Nepal. They were trekking peaks, but we had a fatality, a mistake. And we stopped and we all went home until we could address how that mistake happened. In 2012, Russell and I had a fatality of a Sherpa partner in the ice fall, Dawa. And uh, 
it was actually from a stroke. It wasn't even from an ice fall accident, but the ice fall maybe made it too slow to get him out into a hospital. And he died in my arms in the ice fall while we were waiting for a helicopter. And we went home. We stopped the expedition. We had 39 clients on the mountain that year, 24 on Everest, or sorry, not 39 people, 24 uh, clients on Everest, plus clients on Lotse, plus mountain guides. And we had 48 Sherpa, 100 people on the mountain. It was too big. And there were a lot of mistakes Russell and I made along the way to get to that size. But when we had a fatality of a staff member, we stopped and we spent five days in base camp trying to figure out what it meant and what we needed to do. And we ultimately went home. And there were a lot of external factors. But my point is, like, we shouldn't be brushing these fatalities aside. We shouldn't be pretending they're not happening. And when they do, we should look deep inside of ourselves and try to figure out what went wrong and how we're going to change it. That, that takes a lot of guts and bravery to be like, I made a mistake and to turn around. Um, I, you know, it we, doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen enough. And our politics don't demonstrate it enough. Too many of our famous, you know, people we look up to probably don't do that enough in tech and business, but like, we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. We know that. And like, I am who I am probably more for my mistakes than my successes. And it, yeah, I just hope we can encourage that in our industry and in our lives. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, um, there was a huge thing that happened on Everest that has changed your life. You met Emily on Mount Everest. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's talk about some happy things from Mount Everest. I mean, right? the, cool, the cool thing is Mount Everest for me, like, you know, I'm often asked why it's worth it, things like that, why I go back year and year, isn't it, you know, so all the problems with it. It's like, Everest has given me so many of the most powerful, important parts of my life, right? Like I've, lost people I love there. I've met people I love there. I've had some of my greatest successes there. I've had some of my greatest failures there. Um, like the mountain is the most intense little laboratory of life. And I love that. And yeah, one of the most important things that happened is in 2012, I was there leading an expedition. Emily Harrington, my now wife, was on a North Face expedition for the Mayo Clinic doing scientific research. And uh, one of her teammates got sick at up high on the mountain at 22,000 feet and my team was really well resourced so we went to help and uh in during the rescue which it essentially turned out that Corey who was sick was okay during the rescue Emily and I like met over the body of Corey Richards he was alive <laughs> and uh that's my dramatic way of saying it and we totally like just clicked and um you know we days later we're in base camp and finally got to spend more time together but we had just had this Dawa had just died. And so I was in a really difficult place on the mountain. My team ended up leaving. Her team stayed. And uh, months later, we were like, we should meet back up in the United States to go rock climbing for a couple of days and see if that like little spark we felt was actually something. And it was. We are now married 11 years later and have a six-month-old son. And I don't really ask this question a lot, but Emily has her own extreme sport. I mean, she's, she's, she climbs, she's a mountaineer. Um, how hard is it for you to stand back while she goes and climbs? Like, yeah. how does that make uh, you feel? She's a total badass. Uh, she's, you know, come from <clears throat> the competition climbing world, won many, you know, national championships and things like that, then was one of the best sport climbers in the world and now has shifted to being one of the best like L cap trad free climbers in the world. And she's also done things like summit Mount Everest and ski Cho you the sixth tallest mountain in the world. She's really well-rounded. Um, it's, uh, you know, it is interesting. It's, it's, I think it's been really good for me to have to be on the other side of the equation of trusting someone you love, their judgment, their reasons for why they have to leave for weeks or months at a time and go chase these big dreams. And, um, and to see risk be real for them. It's changed how I expect my family and friends to, to think about the risks I take. Because, you know, a few years ago, Emily had a really big accident in Yosemite, fell 50 feet and hit a ledge before the rope caught her and, you know, was in the ICU. And I was in on a different place of El Cap, but not with her. I wasn't Belanger at the time. And like, just 
feeling those feelings of not being able to help and be truly helpless and not knowing if she was going to live or die for that period of time between when she fell and I got the word and when she was in the hospital. Um, it almost broke me. It almost broke me. And I think that's actually a good experience to have had to be on that other side. I take, I take the risks I take and their effects on the people I love a little differently now because of that. It's a question I don't get to ask very often because usually, you know, their partners are sitting at home doing whatever they do. Um, They're really important things, but different things. Yes, absolutely. Um, before we end this, one final question. Where do you run expeditions and where can we find you? Yeah, so... Uh, the guide company I founded in 2004 is called Alpenglow Expeditions. We're based in Lake Tahoe, California, uh, but we guide both locally in Lake Tahoe and around the world. Uh, so, um, you know, you can find us on our website, alpenglowexpeditions.com, and also, you know, on the socials, Alpenglow Expeditions, and I'm Adrian Ballinger. Uh, Alpenglow Expeditions, I am really proud of. You know, we now take over 6,000 people out a year, everything from Via Ferrata to backcountry skiing to rock climbing locally to expeditions around the world. But every single trip we run is focused on like, you know, kind of sharing the love of what we do and encouraging people to take the next step in the sport. So no matter where you enter from, if you like it, how you can safely do the, the next mountain or the next ski or the next rock climb. And I think it's those paths we can go on where we really, you know, can learn so much about ourselves. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us. And hopefully we'll hear from you again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a really fun conversation. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Next week's episode, you really do not want to miss. I'm telling you guys, this man is absolutely amazing. I am super excited for the interview that we have scheduled for next week. The time difference, again, such a challenge. It's 12 hours time difference. And so I have him scheduled for Sunday night, my time. But it's, you know, Monday morning, his time. So hopefully it happens because, again, you never know what's scheduling. And it seems in the mountaineering world, you never know what's going to happen. Shout out to my friend Bob for helping coordinate this interview that I have scheduled next week. And guys, really, this is like, I mean, one of the powerhouses in mountaineering on Everest right now. Like, this guy is fantastic. So until next time, climb your own climb. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. We would love it if you would rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us on social media at All About Everest Podcast or at Mama Bear Outdoors. You can support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying us a coffee. Until next time.